Our confessional reading this evening is from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20 and 21. You'll find it on page 221, the book of forms and prayers, and 880 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20. We're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit, when He comes. And uh, this evening we'll look again at the great events on the day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And we'll notice that it is a church-building work. So I want to read question and answer 53 and question and answer 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that He is given also to me so that through true faith He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers protects and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. And then if you turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis 11, I want to read the verses 1 through 9 there. Genesis 11, you'll find that on page 10 in the Pew Bibles. And then from there, we'll go to Acts 2. But first, Genesis 11, beginning at verse 1 and reading to the end of verse 9. Now the whole nation, rather, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth." And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And then if you turn to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, chapter 2, Acts 2, you'll find that on page 1,157, 1,157, and I'll read the verses 1 through 13.
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. It was the great early church father, St. Augustine, who divided all of humanity into two cities. Around the year 400 A.D., he wrote the book, The City of God, and in that book he says there are two cities, the city of God, which submits itself to the Lord and has the God as their king, and there is the city of man. And the city of man rejects the lordship of God, refuses to submit to him or his laws. The city of man, Augustine says, follows the lead of the first Adam in rebellion against their creator. The city of God, on the other hand, follows the lead of the second Adam and gladly submits themselves uh, to the sovereignty of God and devotes themselves to worshiping him. And so, world history is, to use a Dickens title, A Tale of Two Cities. Well, here we are this evening in Jerusalem, the Old Testament city of God. And we're here on a memorable day. It's the day of Pentecost, of course, celebrated because of the Old Testament commandment called formally the Feast of Weeks. And on this day of Pentecost, God does an astonishing thing. Our Lord Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father some ten days before, and God had made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, and then Christ as a coronation gift to His church pours out the Holy Spirit upon her. He had received the Spirit from the Father as a gift for his faithful service to the Father in the great act of the redemption of humanity. And Christ, in turn, shares that gift with his church. And we saw last Lord's Day that the gift of the Holy Spirit is for the formation of the church, that it is Pentecost that marks the new covenant beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, 
And the Holy Spirit is not only given for the forming of the church, it's also given for the conforming of the church. That when Moses went up, the law came down. When Christ goes up, the Spirit comes down. And the Spirit is working in the hearts of the people of God, conforming them and changing them to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what we saw last Lord's Day. And this evening, we want to see from the connections between Genesis 11 and Acts 2 that the day of Pentecost is the day of the building of the city of God. You could probably go to no better place than to the old city of Babel to see humanity in all of its ugly rebellion against its creator. You can see that here that Babel, later called Babylon as well, is the quintessential city of rebellion. This is a picture of humanity that refuses to swear allegiance to God refuses to bend the knee before his sovereign majesty. And you see this in Genesis 11 in a couple of ways. First of all, you see it in their refusal to disperse. You might remember that earlier in Genesis, when God had given his creation mandate, he had told them that they were to be fruitful and multiply, and humanity was to fill the earth. That God's great design was that his glory would be made known throughout the whole world. As the prophet would later say, God wanted the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That was God's great design. That people would fill the earth and everywhere testified to the magnificence and glory of God. But these people here in Genesis 11 refused to do that. Instead, they wanted to settle, to be together. In fact, if you look at uh, what they say in verse 4, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they had no concern for the spreading of the glory of God throughout the world. They wanted to settle rather than be dispersed. But that's not even the height of their arrogance. That in itself is arrogant enough to refuse to do what God had created them to do. But you see this in another instance. Because when they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, their intention was not to live for the glory of the one who was in the heavens, but to live for themselves. Notice what they say. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. So instead of devoting the totality of their existence to the honor and glory of their Creator God, they turned in on themselves and built this city and its tower for their own self-aggrandizement as a monument to their own prowess and goodness. They made a name for themselves. And God, of course, will brook no opposition to his plans. You might think that he does when he allows humanity to continue in their disobedience and rebellion, but he is still sovereign. And at this juncture in human history, God said, come, they are one people, they have all one language, 
And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Come, let us go down there can confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so that's exactly what God did. He comes down in judgment, confuses their speech so that they no longer understand one another. Chaos prevails. You children can imagine how this would easily happen. Imagine that one day they're building this tower, and the one fellow says to another fellow, hand me a brick. And the fellow says, sure, and gives him a brick. And then he places that brick in line. And, and then the next day, they are going to do the same thing. And he says to the one fellow, give me a brick. And, and the other fellow looks at him and gives him a hammer. So what, what's going on here? I asked for a brick. Well, the other guy just shrugs and says, huh? I don't know what you're talking about. They're just bewildered because though they used to understand each other, now God comes in judgment and confuses their language so that they have no intelligibility amongst themselves. I remember some years ago when I graduated from Westminster Seminary at the graduation ceremony, and there was also a dinner, we, we put my friend Wes Holland's father and Lucy's father together. Wes Holland's father was from the South, and he spoke with a Southern drawl, you know. And Lucy's father, of course, spoke with a Dutch accent. And we put these two men together, both of whom spoke English, and they spoke for just a few minutes, and then they parted from one another. Because though they spoke the same language, they were unintelligible to each other. That's what God does here at Babylon or at Babel. He comes down and confuses their speech so that they are dispersed instead of gathered together. Well, that's the city of man, raised in rebellion against God. But then some hundreds of years later, God comes down again, this time to another city, this time to the Old Testament city of God, to Jerusalem. And what we see there is this wonderful reversal of the judgment on Babel that instead of judgment, God is coming down in blessing. And the way to see it is just to see the connections that exist between Babel in Genesis 11 and Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. First of all, of course, both places God comes down. In Genesis 11, God speaks to His himself to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, let us go down, and there confuse their language. Whereas in Acts chapter 2, we see that God does come down. God comes down by the Holy Spirit. You can see that by, by the, 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 um, the symbols that are evident there in, in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's evidence of the Spirit of God coming. The divided tongues of fire reminding us that uh, the Spirit would come to, or, or that Jesus would come to baptize with water and with uh, the Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit comes down and is present in Jerusalem. And He comes down primarily for blessing, though of course we'll also see that whenever God comes in blessing, there is judgment as well. So that's the first connection in both places, God comes down. Secondly, we notice 
that God comes down and there is this contrast between what happens in Babel and what happens in Jerusalem. In Babel, there's confusion of language. They aren't able to understand one another. There's a lack of intelligibility. But here in Jerusalem, something marvelous happens. At this sound, when they all heard the the wind and uh, the speaking in tongues, at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. This time, not because they couldn't understand each other, but they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So in the Old Testament, when God came down, there was confusion of language, misunderstanding. Now when God comes down by His Spirit, there is understanding. Things become comprehensible. They get what is being said. In fact, there are people who are speaking in languages other than their own. And it was a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that taught these people, or at least gave these individuals the ability to speak in another language so that people from other parts of the Roman Empire could not only hear them, but understand them. And then the third connection that I want to notice, and that is that Pentecost is a gathering work, whereas Babel is a scattering work of God. So as I mentioned in Genesis 11, the one of the reasons why they wanted to build a city and a tower was so that they would not be dispersed over all the earth. And God comes in judgment, confuses their languages for the very purpose that they are dispersed throughout the nations. In fact, scholars believe that in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10, which is a table of nations, is chronologically before Genesis 11, which is the scattering of the people. So that really what is happening in Genesis 10 is a report of the nations to which people were driven because of God's judgment on the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. But in both situations, you have a table of nations there in Genesis, but also here in Acts chapter 2. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome. There's people there from all over the world, and they are brought together in Jerusalem. And they are brought together to become the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God in Babel brings judgment and scatters them. In Pentecost, God comes down in blessing and gathers them to Himself. The Spirit is the gathering spirit. He is the one who brings people from various places and cultures and colors and backgrounds and unites them to Christ and therefore to one another in the church of Christ. Just listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, speaking about the Holy Spirit. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, 
and all were made to drink of one Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to gather people into one body, to gather people from various nations and tribes and languages and social strata and to bring them together as one. Again, another seminary story, again, referring to Wes Holland. My friend, at the end of our seminary years, men would look for a pulpit to preach the gospel in after they had graduated, and my friend called an independent Presbyterian church somewhere in the south. He himself was from the south. And as he speaks to this elder, within a few minutes, the elder said, we don't just allow anybody to become members of this church. My friend was somewhat surprised by that and asked what he meant. He says, well, we don't just let anyone come off the street and become a member of our church. Now, my friend knew what he was thinking, where this elder was leading, because my friend knew that this this church was south of the Mason-Dixon line in the United States and that there was some hangovers, holdovers of the old south and the mistreatment of blacks. And so my friend pressed him to say explicitly what he was alluding to. And the man said, our church has decided that although black people may worship with us, they may never become members with us. Well, that was the end of the conversation, of course, for my friend Wes. Because that is a very unspiritual attitude. It is contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit. His work is to gather the nations together. Whatever the background, whatever the color, whatever the social strata, whatever uh, the, 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 the differences that distinguish us from one another, whether it's Jew or Greek, whether it's slave or free, it doesn't matter. God's design in Pentecost is to pour out His Spirit to gather the church into one. This is what we confess from Lord's Day 21, that we believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, gathers for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. The Spirit is a gathering Spirit. Pentecost answers Babel, whereas Babel scatters, Pentecost gathers. There's one other distinction that I want to note between Babel and Pentecost and Jerusalem, rather, is what people were talking about. I noted already that Babel was built for the honor of humanity, to celebrate their goodness, their gifts, and their accomplishments. But what are they talking about in Jerusalem? Well, notice what it says there in Acts 2, verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Man is not center stage in Jerusalem. Not even multilingual men. Men speaking a language they had never learned themselves. Not even those kinds of men are center stage. Instead, the mighty works of God are being proclaimed. 
all that God has done for his own glory and majesty are being recounted to the crowns. God, the great creator, who in mercy and love has sent his only begotten son, that God became man in the Virgin Mary, that he lived a life of perfection, that he did miracles and healing and preached the gospel, that he died on Golgotha's cross, that he rose from the dead on the third day, that he now ascended to the right hand of the Father and has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his church. Those mighty works of God are celebrated at Pentecost. Because it is the work of the Holy Spirit always to be Christ-exalting and God-honoring. The Holy Spirit is not one to draw attention to Himself. Though He is God equal in power and glory with the Father and the Son, it is the particular function of the Holy Spirit to draw the attention to Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. It is Christ who is God made visible. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. And the Spirit's work is to draw your attention to Christ for the glory of the Father. And so that's what the Pentecostal Spirit does. And you can tell whether the Pentecostal Spirit has worked in your life. If, it is, if that same inclination is there, what is it that impresses you? Is it your own accomplishments, your own gifts, your own graces? Or what impresses you is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Are you one who makes a name for yourself Or are you one committed to telling the mighty works of God? Are you from Babel or are you Pentecostal? And so you see in this contrast between Babel and Jerusalem, Babel and Pentecost, that really the day of Pentecost is a missionary day. That it is the day of the building of the city of man, populating now the building of the city of God, populating the city of God with not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. In fact, you can see this in a marvelous way in a couple of ways here. First of all, notice that the apostles and the early church spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we might have reason to return to the gift of the Holy Spirit as speaking as, as uh, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit being the ability to speak in tongues from uh, 1 Corinthians 14. But one of the things that you rarely hear in the whole discussion of speaking in tongues is that speaking in tongues is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. That's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. And the reason he says that in 1 Corinthians 14 is because of what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 28. There in Isaiah, God is speaking to his people. They are hard-hearted, rebellious, recalcitrant. They will not repent. They turn away from God. And God says to them, here's my judgment on you. A day is coming 
when you will hear me speak by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, so that tongues, speaking in tongues, is a sign of God's judgment on the Old Testament, Old Covenant church. It's because they would not come to the one who said, Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you, and learn of me, for I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because they would not embrace Jesus, God's Messiah. God comes in judgment, and the sign of his judgment is that people are going to speak the words of God in a foreign language and in other tongues. So what you see happening at Pentecost is that God is taking the Holy Spirit or sending the Holy Spirit, gifting people with the ability to speak in tongues as a sign of judgment on the Jews. And that God is going to take the kingdom and give it to others who will bear fruit. And so it's judgment. The day of Pentecost is judgment on the Jews. But in being judgment on the Jews, it is blessing for the nations. And so the day of Pentecost is really the beginning of the divine mandate to go to the nations to bring people in to the kingdom of God, to give them the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving grace through His death and resurrection. This is really the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to, Genesis, or to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 3. The Lord says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what Pentecost is. That's why there are Gentiles in Jerusalem from all over the world, because now the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go to all the nations, because Christ by His Word and Spirit is going to gather the nations into the body of Christ, so that Jew and Gentile will be united together in the praise and worship of the one true and living God through Jesus Christ, His Son. You might remember that Jesus met with his disciples just prior to his going up into heaven at the end of the the gospel according to Luke. And we read there that his final words to them were, were these. He says, thus is it written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem's Pentecost is the beginning of the worldwide mission of the church to call the nations to Jesus Christ through faith and repentance that they might know the forgiveness of sins. Pentecost is a missionary event. Remember how the Lord had said to His Son in Psalm 2 on His coronation, This day I have begotten you. That's the Son's coronation. 
And the Lord said to his son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So that this is what's happening. The son ascends to the father and receives as a gift for his faithful accomplishment of the work of redemption the nations. The nations become his heritage. The ends of the earth become his possessions. God gives Christ all authority and dominion and the nations for his very own. And now Christ, when he goes up, he sends down his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel and through the ministry of the church, goes throughout all the world proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, hard hearts are broken and are replaced and given people are given hearts of flesh so that they bow down and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. So that Pentecost is a missionary event. The missionary spirit has been sent by the missionary Savior who shed his own blood for the world to declare that the missionary God offers salvation to all sinners in Jesus Christ the Lord. Pentecost is a missionary event. And when the Spirit comes down at Pentecost, the church can never be the same again. A church that is filled with the Spirit is never a church that is insular, a church that thinks only of itself. It doesn't think that the church exists only to minister to me for my happiness, for my pleasure, for my comfort as I travail this life from uh, earth to heaven. No, a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit and a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit will always have this expansive heart, will always be concerned about the nations, about their neighbors, about the people around them who live in utter rejection of God and His grace and glory in Jesus Christ. A church filled with the Spirit is always a missionary church. Now, why is this? Well, I think it works like this, and perhaps it will be helpful to you as it was to me, that when the Spirit comes upon a person, what is the Spirit's work? Or when the Spirit comes upon the church, what does the Spirit do? Well, we know what the Spirit's task is. It is always to direct our attention to Christ. As our Lord Jesus said in John 16, verse 14, He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. So the Spirit will lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, hold Him in all of His wonder and majesty and mystery before our eyes. And then the Spirit will work in our hearts so that we will be captured by the Lord Jesus, enamored by Him, that we would understand Him to be better than anything this world has to offer. We will be so lost in love and wonder and awe and praise of the Lord Jesus Christ that it will burden us now 
that others do not know this Christ and do not give Him the glory that He deserves. So that a Christian who is filled by the Spirit will say, what? Are there really people in this world who only think Jesus is a prophet and do not believe that He is the Son of God, very God of very God? Are there people like that? Then who's going to tell the Muslims of Jesus Christ and His matchless glory. Or they'll hear about others who are in bondage to the evil spirits. Do you mean to tell me that there are people who offer sacrifices to to cows and to snakes in order to appease the spirits and who live all their life in fear of death? Are there really people like that? Well, who will go and tell them of the victory of Christ? that He is God of God and the God of all gods. And who will tell people of the liberty that can be found in Jesus Christ for all who come to Him in faith? The Spirit always works within us a missionary instinct to tell the nations about the glory of Christ, not just for their blessing, and benefit, though certainly it will be for theirs, but so that they might honor the Son, that they might glorify Jesus Christ as the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration and glory now and forever. So that the church that is filled with the Spirit will be a missionary church that will either send its young men and young women around the world to tell others that there is this great Savior whom they have never heard about, and I'm here to tell you about Him. They'll send their children throughout the nations, and they'll empty your wallets, and you'll deny yourself things so that the gospel might be advanced, and you'll show an interest into the cause of Christ among the nations. Later, and next month, at the end of the month, We're going to have a missionary here, Norlin de Groot, who's going to speak to us about what God is doing in Asia. And if you're working, if the Spirit of God is working in you, you'll have this interest in what God is doing there because you want God to be glorified by the Nepalese and the Indians and the Tibetans and the Chinese and to no longer wallow in unbelief and heathenism and paganism and the worship of everything that is not God, giving to others the glory that belongs to God alone. The missionary, I mean the Spirit-filled church is always a mission-filled church. And you can determine the level of your worship of God by your love and longing for others to worship Him as well. Just this past week, I finished a biography of John and Betty Stamm. I was about to say that they were an American couple who went to China to become missionaries, but that's not exactly true. They met each other at Moody Bible Institute, liked one another, But before they committed to marrying each other, they had to determine whether each of them independently was called by God to go to China. Because uh, Betty was determined that God had called her to China, 
But if God had called John somewhere else, then they weren't going to get married. They had put the kingdom of God first in their lives. And as it turned out, they got married in China. The Lord led both of them there. And in Betty Stam's, uh, an article in a magazine introducing Betty Stam, she says this, Praising the Lord is, I believe, the only thing in the world worth doing. Praising the Lord is, I believe, the only thing in the world worth doing. And praising Him, this is important, and praising Him involves bringing in other members of His body, those now in heathenism, to Him. You see what she's saying? What was the missionary impulse in Betty Stam's life? Betty Scott at this time. She was so enamored with the glory of God that she wanted others to join her in the praise of God. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says that worship is the reason for missions. The reason there is missions is because worship does not exist. And the goal of bringing the gospel to the nations is that the nations would be glad and give glory to their God. Well, that's what it means to be a Pentecostal church, to be filled with the Spirit of the living God. It is to have a missionary inclination to see and long to see the glory of God in the face of Christ known among the nations. You'll know, of course, that heaven is the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost. At Pentecost, you have the nations telling the mighty works of God. Well, we read in Revelation 7 that the apostle John looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And what were they doing in heaven? Well, of course, they were telling the mighty works of God. They were crying out with a loud voice. Do you ever wonder what language they're going to cry out in? Whatever it is, they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what it means to be a Pentecostal church, to have the nations gathered together to glorify God the Father and God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. O God, our God, You are worthy of praise and honor as the great Creator of all things. And as the great Savior, you have called the nations to look unto you. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God, and besides you there is no other. And so we pray that you would send your church throughout the world to proclaim your word, to declare the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that you would send your spirit too among the nations, so that by word and spirit Christ might gather his church until that great day when faith becomes sight, and we stand in that multitude that no one can number, and we lift up our hearts and voices together
in an everlasting song of praise, telling the mighty works of our God. Help us as individuals to be so focused on your glory and majesty that our lives would be lived for your praise and honor. And we pray that you would raise up young men and young women to go from this congregation to the ends of the world to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ and make us a sending church so that we would support them by our prayers and by our gifts so that the name that is above every name might be declared, loved, and worshipped. And we pray this in our dear Savior's name. Amen.